So we're in Exodus. We're kind of doing Exodus in chunks um, because we have things going on throughout the year, and Exodus is a long book. For instance, uh, Valentine's Day is Ash Wednesday, and that's the beginning of Lent. So we're going to take a pause from Exodus while we do Lent. That's coming up pretty quickly, and then we'll come back and wrap it up. But Exodus naturally defines itself into different categories anyway. And I picked Exodus because some of you were here three years ago when we did Leviticus. Leviticus is the blueprint or the foundation for understanding the concept of holiness. And it undergirds all of Jesus' teachings in life. Uh, And the authors of the New Testament, it talks about sacrifice, priesthood, clean and unclean, all those things. And that just is woven all throughout the New Testament. So it really gives us that glimpse of what what does it mean to be the people of God? Well, Exodus, very similarly to that, lays the foundation or is the blueprint for true freedom. Now, it's captured in the Exodus from slavery out of Egypt, but that's only the first 15 chapters of Exodus. And the whole book of Exodus becomes the paradigm for freedom in the New Testament. Okay, For example, Romans 6, Paul says in Romans 6, you have been rescued or set free or saved from the uh, master called sin, from slavery to sin. Okay, that's a direct connection back to being let go from slavery to in Egypt. You've been set free from slavery. And so Exodus is all about what this freedom looks like. Galatians 5, Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And so Exodus lays the foundation for understanding what that freedom is and what it's all about. Last week, I asked you the question, why did uh, God lead them the long way? He could have led them from Egypt right up along the Mediterranean coast to the uh, promised land. That would have taken 10 or 11 days, but he didn't do that. He led them instead south and east over into the Sinai Peninsula in the desert for a, a period of time. Why did he lead them over there? And there's several reasons given. One is the um, God even says at the beginning of Exodus, if I lead them straight there and they see all the nations who are prepared for war, they're going to get scared because they're slaves, they're not soldiers. Another reason is because they were very familiar with the, uh, the philosophies and the mythologies of Egypt and the land of Canaan, that whole region. So he had to get them away from that to begin to give them a new identity. When we studied Leviticus, some of you may remember, I asked the question, okay, you're God and you have a brand new nation of slaves. You're out in the desert. They don't know anything. And you're going to teach them about you. Where would you start? Would you start with creation? That's where God started. Okay, so picture this. The Israelites are sitting at the base of Mount Sinai in the sand. Okay, and they are hearing the story for the first time. They didn't have a Bible. It hasn't been written yet. Okay, so they don't even know their own story. And so they had experienced the power of God through the plagues. And then they had gone through the desert a little bit. We talked about that last week. And now they're sitting there and the story is being recited for them. Genesis, Exodus into Leviticus. So Exodus 19 is where real time catches up with them. It's no longer a story. They're now living in the story. And so they get to hear about it. Would you start with creation? Why creation? Wouldn't you start with who you are as God? Well, in a sense, he is. You think about your children. How do we create Christian identity? By the things we do in our families. Also by the things we teach them. For example, our children need to know the story of Jonah. They don't understand it. They just know about a big fish. Okay, that's what they know. 
but they don't really understand where Jonah fit in. That Jonah was sent to Nineveh, one of the key capital cities of the Assyrians who are a brutal people that God's getting ready to send to destroy the northern kingdom. They don't know all that. But by teaching them the basic story, and we teach them all the stories, they begin to form an identity, especially with what you do in your families. And so that identity begins to be realized because they're thinking, well, my friends at school don't know about Jonah. How come I know about it and they don't? It's just a subconscious thing. So God starts with creation so that he can say to them, this is not about the gods of Egypt. Let me tell you what really happened. Don't believe what you heard in Egypt. What they're saying is not true at all. Let me tell you the reality of how all this came about. And then he begins to lay out the story through Genesis into the first part of Exodus. And so he leads them out. They haven't met God yet. That's going to happen today, by the way. In Exodus 19, they haven't met God. They have heard about him, and they have seen his power from uh, the way he destroyed the, uh, the major gods of Egypt through the ten plagues. So that was one of the first questions, is, is this God powerful enough? I mean, Hinduism has 330 million gods, okay? Which God are you going to follow? We're going to see in just a minute, there's actually no allegiance to any God, but they're going to find a God that will defend them. So if you go to the various regions in, uh, like in uh, Kathmandu, they worship the uh, goddess called Kali. She's a warrior god. And the reason why they worship her is because she protects them from all the other gods. You never know which gods are going to be angry with you. Okay, and so that's, he answered the first question, is he powerful enough? And he answered yes by destroying all the major gods of Egypt through the plagues. Then he leads them out. Okay, that's good. Now we know. But they don't even know to ask the second question, I think. Does he care? Oh, the gods cared. Okay, they, were, they weren't there for you to emulate. They're there for you to, to manipulate and placate. You want to placate them. So he takes them out into the desert to places where they don't have water. So they have to cry out. They don't have food, so they have to cry out. They're about to be attacked by the Amalekites, so they have to cry out. Okay? And so he's forcing them to start answering questions they didn't even know. Does he care? And so he's showing them during that early wilderness section, we talked about that last week, that yes, in fact, he does care, but now he has to introduce another category, a third category, is that why? Why did he choose you? Why didn't he choose the Egyptians? They're more powerful. Why not any of the nations in the land of Canaan? Why you? And so that's the question he's going to start wrestling with now. So this journey through Exodus is teaching every step of the way uh, who God is and by teaching that, he's beginning to teach them who they are. Because if your identity is found in, in a, a God's everywhere, that's a different identity than if the one true God says, no, I'm going to choose you to be my people. That's a whole different identity. Okay, That's the difference between raising somebody in a family of love. You're my son, you're my daughter, I'm going to love you, versus a family that's abusive and they don't care. Two different identities get shaped. So he's going to read, he's continuing the process, I should say, of redefining their, their identity, but along with that comes a sense of purpose. And God's very unique how he surfaces this. But before we get there, let me say a word about Egyptian mythology or cosmology, okay? This is what they came out with. The 
in the Egyptian way of thinking in the lands of Canaan, the cosmos is God. God is equal to the cosmos. The cosmos is God. Everything is God. God is everything. Okay? And they don't know how to differentiate it. That becomes important in just a minute. The purpose in life is that there isn't any. There's no purpose in life. Even when you go to a Hindu or Buddhist country today, or a voodoo or animistic country, you experience the same phenomena. You know, there is no, there's no purpose in life. Survival is the goal. If you're in a Hindu country and you're a very poor person, that's because you really struggled in the last reincarnation. Now, don't be fooled. The American view of reincarnation is what goes around, comes around. That is not, uh, that is not the Eastern view of, of uh, uh, karma. I should say karma. What happens in karma is that you're where you are in this reincarnation because of what you did in the last reincarnation. And so you really have no chance to escape that until you die, and hopefully next reincarnation is better. And so there's no purpose. The purpose is purely survival. Okay? It's very different than the way we think in our country. By the way, that brings up a point. One of the reasons we think, and we're going to see this in just a minute, is that uh, I'm not going to get into the argument of whether we are a Christian nation. We can have coffee if you want to talk about it. I think some of our forefathers were in fact Christian, and some of them weren't. We have plenty of evidence of that. But what we can say is that the principles that they used to derive our foundational documents were driven from principles here. We do know that. And if you're if you ever in doubt, come with me to... India, Nepal, Cambodia, come with me where you see none of these principles played out in culture and you'll understand what I mean. But our forefathers did have some tough challenges to make because they're interwoven with some of the philosophies of the day. For example, Aristotle Aristotle taught that everyone has the right to happiness. And our forefathers said, don't know if that's quite right. So they revised it and said everyone has the right to the pursuit of happiness. That is a fundamental shift in world philosophy to get to that place. So when we get to chapter 20 next week, you're going to see the foundational principles from which our country, uh, our core documents were developed. doesn't mean we live them out well. I'm not trying to say our country is perfect, far from it. All you have to do is watch any of the news, media, social, whatever you want, and you find out we're a disaster like every other country. We are. Okay? Don't be fooled. Okay? Don't be fooled. Nothing new under the sun. This is what history is all about. And so there's no purpose in life. That's another one. Another key point is that there are many gods. Everything is a god. If you walk down the streets of Madurai, India, or uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, if you know what you're looking for, come with me and I'll show you. When you're walking down the streets and you see little idols here and there, little altars and things like that, somebody's walking along and trips over a root of a tree that's a god, falls but doesn't hurt themselves, they put a little altar there to appease that god. And so that's what Paul talks about. God, idols everywhere. And so... When you have 330 million gods, there's no allegiance. There isn't any. And furthermore, there's no protection. None. So in Kathmandu, they offer sacrifices to the goddess Kali so she won't be angry with them and turn on them. There's no protection. You're not important. You don't matter. Along with that, there's no standard of ethics. One of the conversations Rob and I have been having of late is we're just enjoying the conversations with people out and about around the county or wherever we are. And uh, there's no standard for ethics, none, for most people. Okay, you have one because we're developing it here, but this is not normal to human behavior. So C.S. Lewis argued a long time ago that all of us have a moral compass that's just broken. We can't find true north. 
Why is it that uh, mothers in Kathmandu have children just so they can sell them? That's, that's, you've got to be kidding me. That's how we think. Because we have a developed sense of ethics different than they do. And so prior to 1500 BC, when the Ten Commandments were given, I, I haven't found anybody that could point to a, a law code of any of the little nations that talked about murder from a moral perspective. It's not. It's a utilitarian perspective. So Stan... If I kill your wife, we're not going to get along. Well, maybe we will get along. Maybe you don't like her. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You're not gonna, we're not going to get along. But you and I have no issues about killing the people in Breckenridge. I mean, it makes sense. It's Breckenridge. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? So it wasn't until chapter 20 that the concept of morality of murder floats into the world discussion and it begins to shift and change the way people thought. And so there's no standard of ethics. What is your standard for, for deciding um, on, say, abortion or on the various possibilities with abortion? What's your standard? I've had so many people say, I mean, in Colorado, we have the most liberal abortion policies in the state. Excuse me, one second. You can get an abortion on the day of delivery. And most people I talk to, it doesn't matter where you are on their political spectrum, say, oh, that's, that's just terrible. You know, it ought to be six weeks, it ought to be eight weeks. And it's like, why? You tell me why. What's your standard for making that decision? Well, prior to what's coming, there was no standard. And in most of the world today, there still is not a standard. You know who set the standard? Who set it? The king. Most of you know I practice taekwondo. And so as I've gone up through the ranks in my black belt, I have to contribute to the art. So I have to write a paper. So my last test, I wrote a paper on the ethics and the morality. You see, there was a uh, situation in Florida where a master who had his own school was convicted and pled guilty to sexual assault to several 12 and 13-year-old girls. Okay, now you, I see several of you shaking your head. Why was that a standard? It was okay back then. What happened to make that standard? So I went back and evaluated the concept of morality in martial arts. I went back to about 1000 BC. That's about as far back as I could find any recorded writings, and I wrote about it. And so every step of the way, every martial artist that was a master talked about the importance of holding to ethics and morality, but none of them defined it. Why? Because it's defined by whoever has power. And it shifts from culture to culture. Why is it okay to marry a 13-year-old girl in the first century like Mary, but not today? Why was it okay to sexually assault a 13-year-old girl, but not today? How'd, those moral, how'd that morality shift? And so if you don't have a standard, then it's all over the map. Just like judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so there is no standard of ethics at this time in the world. Another one is that divine power can be manipulated. The gods were there to be appeased and manipulated. It goes something like this. Okay, So the gods, technically they correspond to us. In other words, what we see with us is what happens in the God, among the gods. So... They had this uh, simple idea. When a man and a woman are intimate, she gets pregnant with a child. When it rains, crops grow. That must be semen. I'm not lying to you. This is Canaanite mythology. Must be semen. So how do we get the gods to get semen out? Well, it gets exciting to us as men. Let's go, and the Old Testament talks about this, let's go up to high places and have orgies and the gods will get excited and it'll rain. We call it agricultural rights and fertility rights. But that's what happened. How would you know? 
We have the benefit of 3,000 years of science and the Bible, which they had neither. How would you possibly know? So we can manipulate the gods into making it rain. And we can manipulate the gods into not being angry with us. Okay, that goes against all of your sense of ethics, every one of you, because that's been already developed because of this. But these, these slaves sitting here had never heard this, what's about to happen. And the final thing is that everything was understood in terms of sexuality because the gods corresponded to us. So the male gods, whenever you had thunder, that was the male gods chasing the female gods to be intimate with them, okay? Everything is defined in terms of sexuality, which we're going to see in just a minute. Okay, so how on earth did God reveal his purpose? He did it very uniquely. He created a covenant. And you think, what's unique about that? We have contracts all over the place. Back then, they didn't. You see, the covenant uh, was only used by kings. It wasn't used by the gods. And it was used by the kings because I fight and I take your city over. Guess what? You're now my slaves. I'm going to create a covenant with you. It looks like this. You obey me or you die. <laughs> okay? It's pretty, none, of the, none of the ancient covenants had a law code built in, a sense of ethics. You do what I tell you. It's that simple. So God chose a form that they understood, but used it very differently. The book of Deuteronomy is laid out just like a, his, a Hittite covenant treaty. And, and the, what we're hearing here in Exodus follows the same format. So he chose a covenant form, but then he, re, he used it in a very different way. Okay? The, the concept of purpose comes into the covenant through the Mosaic law. And rather than demand and get angry and get upset, he just says very simply, here's what I'd like to see from you. And you get to choose. Remember in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, whenever you offer a sacrifice, do it this way. That's an invitation. That's not the way it was under the king. You will offer a sacrifice to me or whoever, and here's what it looks like. But now he's saying, I'll let you decide to do it. The same is true right here in the covenant that he's going to make with them. So God used a covenant form, but he used it to teach truth. He used it to teach who he was, and he used it to invite them into a relationship where they would be his people and he would be their God and take care of them, provide for them and protect them. So the very first part of the covenant, which is very common, was a sense of the importance of history. And here's what is said here. This is in Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. And this is what he said. This is what you shall say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now they're sitting right here, getting ready to be invited. So the very first thing we learned is that God followed the format and he used this sense of history to create gratitude, not subjugation. You're not my slaves. I brought you out of Egypt. You're no longer slaves. Okay? I want you to be grateful for what I'm getting ready to invite you into. The second thing is uh, loyalty, if you will. Loyalty to a king, but this time it's the one true God. He's going to invite them, not mandate. Verse 5. Now, if, if, there's that key word, if, you get to choose. It's like Leviticus, whenever you offer a sacrifice... 
I'll let you decide. That goes back to garden, the garden of Adam and Eve. You get to choose if you're going to eat the fruit or not. You see, this is the essence of human dignity that is not found in the other nations, even today. When you bring in the whole concept of karma, you have no choice. You're where you are today because of the last reincarnation. And listen to what he says here, these beautiful words. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations okay, that you've seen and experienced, you will be my treasured possession. No God ever said that. Do you see the invitation? The invitation to be loved, to be known. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God just said, I'm going to let you decide, but I'm inviting you into a relationship and then I will care for you. You'll be my people from that time on. Okay, this is the covenant right here. From here on out, it gets expanded, but this is the core covenant. This is the covenant we believe in today. Peter says, 1 Peter 2, you are a kingdom of priests. Revelation chapter 1, chapter 5, and other places in Revelation. God has created for himself a kingdom of priests, a holy people. That's who we are, and it goes back to right here. This is why he did everything he did for 18 chapters, to get him to the place where he can now say to them, trust me. You've seen my power. You see that I care. And now I want you to trust me. And I'll tell you why. And this is where the Mosaic Law comes into the picture. As he brings that into the covenant, he begins to identif- identify what their purpose is. What their purpose is. A kingdom of priests. The moment I say to you, you're a priest, you have a purpose. They had no purpose. Well, their purpose was to build bricks. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. You now have a purpose to love somebody else around you. So what does Jesus say when he gives the two great commandments? One out of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other one out of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the prophets and the commands hang on these two commands. These two. As you learn to love people and love God, you're fulfilling everything God asks. Everything. And here's the crazy thing about it. Paul argues in Romans 7 and 8 that when you turn to him, he says the righteous requirement of the law that you love God and love people is now fulfilled in you. It doesn't say you'll fulfill it. It says it's now fulfilled. Your natural, your natural tendency now is to move slowly toward loving people. That's your natural tendency. That's why I say, if you guys are in sin, don't stay there. Come talk to me. Let's find out what the obstacle is to intimacy with Jesus, with each other. It's just sin. That's all it is. We'll come back to that in just a second. So once the people agreed, God gave them a standard of ethics that was unique and unknown. Okay, let me say a word about sin. In today's world, we've managed to communicate that sin is primarily about judgment. That is not true. The judgment aspect of sin was dealt with on the cross. Sin was an act of grace on God's part. Some of you have heard me use this example. If I say to my four-year-old son don't, or child, don't run out in the street, you're going to get hurt. That's responsible. 
If I say nothing and my four-year-old child runs out in the street and gets hit by a car, I go to jail for abuse. So it's an act of grace. So I say to my son, don't our daughter run out in the street. That's what the definition of sin is all about. It's about protecting you for the way God created you. Because sin robs you of life. It hurts you. And you'll never find happiness if you're engaging in sin. You just won't. So if God had never said, told us about the destructiveness of drunkenness, we'd all find out the hard way. And so it's an act of grace that God would say, don't do this. And so by developing a standard of ethics, he's at the same time creating boundaries by which we live in which we find freedom, freedom and happiness. Sin will always enslave you, always. Ask a drug addict, ask an alcoholic, ask a philanderer. You'll never get enough. The concept of addiction is very much connected to sin. And God's trying to protect us. That's really what he's trying to do. And so at the same time he identifies a standard of ethics, they had not seen that in any of the, the uh, covenants of the ancient world. He's identifying a standard of ethics. He's creating boundaries to protect his people morally so that they can enjoy what he had intended for them. All right? And at the same time, he's giving them a purpose. It's all wrapped up together. That's why this, there's no way you can describe how unique and wonderful this is what he's doing here. He's giving them a purpose. You're going to be priests on behalf of whom? The rest of the world. So we can tell them we have met the one true God. Or as John said, we have seen Jesus. You can do what you want to us, but you can't take that away. Our eyes have seen him. We heard him. We touched him with our hands. And that's what this is all about. So once that they have agreed... Um, they've consecrated themselves because what they said was, everything that the Lord has asked, we will do. And they keep saying that all throughout here. Okay, so now they've made the agreement. Well, okay, we will do that. So then he gives them this standard of ethics and it starts with consecration, Exodus 19, verse 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, go to the people, because they've already said, we'll do what you ask, and consecrate them. That's the verb for holiness. Sanctify yourself, consecrate yourself, make yourself holy, whatever it is. Okay, that's the word. Consecrate them. Set them aside apart from the rest of the world today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. Okay, pause. Where are they? Are they at a Holiday Inn? They're in the desert. The very first thing he asks them as he's introducing himself to them is wash your clothes. Why? Because that is sacrificial. Remember, just... A couple chapters before, twice, they didn't have enough water to drink, and now he wants them to sacrifice by washing their clothes. That's sacrifice. Give up something costly. Trust me. There it is. That's an invitation. Trust me. And be ready on the third day. Okay, pause. When you see the word third day in Scripture, stop. We now know the third day is language for God is about to reveal his glory. In John chapter 2, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Okay, if you read John chronology, it's actually the fifth day. But why would he say the third day? Because he's giving you a theological term. God's about to reveal his glory. And sure enough, the wedding of Cana is where Jesus did his first miracle to reveal glory. 
On the third day, God's about to reveal himself. He's about to meet his people. They haven't met him. It's pretty fascinating how he does it. <laughs> he goes on in verse 14, or 15, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> Moses is talking to the people. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. Why that? Why that? Because in the ancient world, sexuality was tied to worship of the gods. And he's now disconnecting that idea. This has nothing to do with sexuality. I am God and you are not. So he's asking them to do two things. Wash their clothes in a desert and abstain from sexual relations because I want you to see that this has nothing to do. I do not correspond to you as a human like the other gods do. So therefore, get that out of your mind. So he's asking them to trust him. Next week, we get to the Ten Commandments. We'll start looking at those. And we're going to see what he's done. And this foundation he laid. In every country that has a strong influence of Christianity has adopted these principles and are blessed. The countries that have not, that don't have a strong Christian principle, you can go to the United Nations website, map it out yourself, that are missing these core principles they fail when it comes to human rights. Very destructive. And it tells you something about what God did here. Okay, the rest of the chapter 19, I'm not going to go through it. God sets a, we'll finish with this. He sets a boundary, Mount Sinai, here's a boundary. Don't cross it or you will die. In fact, set the boundary out here so you can't accidentally touch it. So he's teaching them something very important here. You may remember a couple of amphitheaters ago, we talked about temples. So I raised the question, Moses is walking through the desert and he sees a burning bush and he walks over here, it's not being burned up. And what does God say to him? Take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. So why is this dirt over here not holy, but this dirt over here is holy? It's because of God's presence. That makes it a temple. The presence of God is what a temple was all about in the ancient world. So God just created a temple on Mount Sinai, but it's a very big one now because he's communicating to a whole nation of slaves of who he is. And we're going to find out next week why, but he terrifies them. The whole mountain starts shaking. There's cloud and fog they can't see. There's thunder and lightning everywhere and a trumpet blaring so loud. And sure enough, Exodus 19, they run to the other side of the valley. Exodus 20, we'll see, Moses have to go after them. It's kind of a funny story. He has to go find them. Whoa, 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 get back here, get back here. And he explains why God did that. They get to experience God's power up close and personal, not through the plagues. But now they're at the base of the mountain. And you see what we learn from this right away is that when you begin to establish the standard of ethics, you begin to create boundaries. Anything on the wrong side of the boundary is destructive. Anything on the right side of the boundary is refreshing and redemptive and protective. Which is why all of you that have children have taught your children your version of right and wrong. Because you know to be on the wrong side is wrong. It's, destro it's destructive. I grew up there. I've been there. I can't wait to see my dad. And just to give him a hug in eternity and say, thanks, Dad, for loving me. 
and doing your best to teach me. I'm so sorry I ignored you. But I had to find out the hard way, and I did. But hopefully your children don't have to find out the hard way. So the boundaries were there to protect the Israelites, and this forms the basis for freedom. If you don't identify what sin is, you have no freedom. Because sin is a declaration of grace. If you do this, you will not be happy. And if you don't do it, you will. Do you get it? Sin is not about rule books. It's not about judgment. It's not about all that. Jesus took care of all that. It's about you being created in the image of God and you were created for joy and purpose. And this is where he begins to lay it out. And every one of you in here knows what it's like when you step over that boundary into sin. Or do something stupid, same thing. That's why I've said to you, if you're, if you're in sin, don't stay there, okay? Come talk to me. Or any of our elders or staff, come talk to us. As Jesus said in Luke 6, there will be no judgment, no condemnation. It doesn't say I can't laugh at you, okay? You got yourself in a bind. I've been there, okay? And I may chuckle and say, wow, you really got yourself stuck, don't you? But don't stay stuck because what keeps you from moving to the Lord now, if you're a believer, it's automatic, is there sin in the way, that's all. And so as we talk through it and you figure it out, then you have the freedom to say, I'm going to stop doing that. So I experience more of the joy that God created me for. So this is how God is beginning to reveal himself. This later on gets codified in Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit. What's first? Love. What's second? What's next? There you go. That's a description of who God is and he's beginning to reveal it now to, this, to these slaves sitting there for the first time. He's revealing it to them by setting standards and boundaries and creating a whole new image. You see how wonderful this is? This is the way to freedom. There's no shortcut. This is the way to freedom. Freedom is not doing what you want. Freedom is doing what's best. Teach your children that and your grandchildren. Father, thank you. Thank you for your, well, this incredible experience that they went through. Lord, thank you for beginning to teach these slaves who know very little about you the honest truth, the reality of the way you made us. Thank you, Lord, for introducing to the world a whole new standard by which the world can find you and find freedom and find purpose, find joy find identity. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you're actually not trying to control our lives. You're trying to bless us and set us free so that we can truly enjoy each other and you in this wonderful creation. Thank you for your goodness. In your son's name we pray. Amen.